Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. That is the word of God. You may be seated. Morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. What a great morning. You know, it is really cool to be in a middle school praising Jesus, taking a public school and making it sacred, you know, and, and worshiping the Lord in a space like this. And it's a great morning. I mean, Steve, that was a wonderful reading of the scripture. I feel like, you know, when we start that drama team and we need someone to have like the voice of the demons, we're, we're calling on Steve. So, um, no, it's just, just yeah, that was awesome. Um, would, you, would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Let, let's take a moment to pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning um, just grateful, Lord, for Jesus, our King. And Lord, just as Jesus had power and authority over the demons, Lord, we know that he has power and authority in our lives as well. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would be evident in this space, in, in our own lives, Lord, that your rule and reign would be very clear in each one of us. And Father, I pray for those areas um, that we each could point to in our own lives where your rule and your reign is not yet complete. Father, where there is still sin that we're clinging to, holding on to. Lord, where, where there are relationships that are broken. Father, in various ways that we have not allowed you to rule and reign um, in each of our lives, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us, Lord, and, and show us what those areas are and help us, Lord, to submit our lives to you. Lord, we pray that your, your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, I, I pray, Father, that um, through the gospel going forth, Lord, your kingdom would be extended beyond this place, Lord, and that um, every corner of our world 
would come to be the kingdom of Christ. That, Lord, you would accomplish your good purposes in this world, Lord, in every area. And that, Father, um, we would get the joy of being part of that, Lord. Give us, give us um, a, a deep desire, Lord, to see um, your kingdom come, your will be done in Pasco and in Tri-Cities as it is in heaven, Lord. Um, help us to, to earnestly desire that, Lord, and to um, work towards that end. Father, as we um, come to this passage of Scripture, as we consider uh, Christ and His ministry, um, Lord, I pray that You would uh, just open our eyes to these things and help us to, to really appreciate what Your Word would be saying to us this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by actually uh, going to the Old Testament, and I want to tell you a story. Um, it's a really interesting story about kind of a crazy event that happens in the history of Israel. And uh, this takes place in 2 Kings chapter 6, and kind of the, the time frame is Israel is um, in kind of the, the rough season of their history. They've had a number of ungodly kings, and they keep getting invaded by surrounding countries. And this story in 2 Kings 6 goes like this. There, there's a king in, a, in Syria, which is to the north of them. And the king in Syria wants to invade Israel and attack the king of Israel. And so he's looking for an opportunity to come in and capture and defeat the king of Israel. But every time he makes a plan and he shows up, the king in Israel is somewhere else. Like, he knew that the king was going to be right there. He shows up, and, and the king somehow escaped. And the reason for that is the prophet Elisha, we're told, knew what was going to happen and would warn the king of Israel, don't be in this town. You need to leave town. You need to go somewhere else because the king of Syria is coming. He's headed right here. And this happens several times until the king of Syria, who's invading, is getting really frustrated. And he goes to his servants and he says, okay, guys, I think there's a spy in our midst and we need to figure out who it is. And his servants say, no, that's not what's going on. That's not what's actually happening. What's happening is this prophet that they have, the prophet Elisha, he knows what's going to happen. In fact, he goes and he tells the king of Israel, even the words that you say in your own bedroom in private, he knows, he knows everything. And so that's what keeps happening. So then, of course, the king of Syria is like, well, we got we to gotta capture this guy, Elisha, take him out. And so he gathers his chariots and horsemen and armies and, and comes down and shows up at night and surrounds the city that Elisha is in. He thinks he's got him. You know, he's got thousands of troops around this city and there's no way out. And so um, in the morning... We're told that Elisha, you know, and his, uh, he, he gets up in the morning and he has this servant, this, this young guy that's, that's um, apparently kind of helping him out. And this young guy goes out and uh, he sees that the city is surrounded. You know, early morning sunlight, he looks out, oh no, what do we do? And he's just filled with fear and he comes back and tells Elisha, we're surrounded. What are we going to do? We're trapped. And so Elisha says to him in 2 Kings 6, verse 16, he says, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. So what what happens is this young man, because Elisha prays, is able to see the angelic realm. He's able for a moment to see what's really happening. Yes, there's an army, and yeah, it's it's a lot more than we have, and yeah, they're going to take us out, but ultimately, there was an army of angels protecting them. And so the story goes on that um, Elisha prays, and all of the army of the king of Syria is blinded, just in a moment. And then they lead them along and, and basically send them on their way, ultimately. And so you have this amazing story, this crazy story, where their eyes are opened, where, where you know, this, this um, young man and Elisha are able to see the angelic realm. Today we have a really cool opportunity in Luke to have our eyes opened, don't we? And we get to see through this ministry of Jesus what's really going on. And, you know, in our time, we, we you know, kind of live in a world that is convinced, at least a society here in the U.S., that's convinced that the world is just stuff, that, that what you see is what you get. There's just material things, and we don't really believe in, often, the angelic realm, this spiritual realm that is invisible to us. And yet, through these stories of Jesus casting out demons, we get a chance for our eyes to be open to what's really going on. So, today we're going to be talking about Jesus, the one true king, and how his kingdom is greater than the reign of these demons that was going on at that time. So, we're in Luke 4, and what we're going to see is really three aspects of the kingdom of God. And I want to begin by reading the last couple verses here at the end of this story, because it's instructive for us, and it's going to set the theme for the rest of Luke. So, I want to pick up in Luke 4, verse 42, and it says, And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. Now, He's been healing, and He's been casting out demons, and the people love this, okay? And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, just an observation, this is the first time in the book, in this um, gospel of Luke, that we hear about the kingdom of God. And that phrase is going to show up 31 times. I didn't count. I have Bible software that does that for me. So 31 times the kingdom of God shows up in the Gospel of Luke. And this is a major theme throughout. And what we see here is this contrast, this this strong contrast between the kingdom of God and whatever's going on with these demons. And Jesus, who has had this amazing, effective ministry, casting out demons, and the people want him to stay, he says, I've got something more important. And what is that more important thing? He needs to go forth and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's his priority. So yes, he's a miracle worker, and he does amazing miracles, but he says that's not the first thing. The first thing, his priority is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so he's going to leave 
something, I mean, it's all going great here. <laughs> the people love him. And it's this amazing opportunity. And yet he leaves because he needs to continue going forth, preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom of God. And so he's a preacher first, miracle worker second. The miracles are there to support the message and not vice versa. And so he goes forth teaching about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, that is the rule and the reign of God everywhere. And it's something that um, ought to exist, and yet we live in a world where this, this world is under, under siege. It, this is contested territory. And so, wherever the gospel goes forth, wherever the kingdom of God roots itself in the lives of His people, the kingdom of God is there. So, we have the rule and the reign of Christ in our lives, in our hearts, to the extent that we have trusted Him. Um, but ultimately, that kingdom of God is going to go forth, and when Christ returns, He will ultimately reign over everything. So, the direction that history is headed is in this direction of Christ being king. Now, what's interesting about that is often, I think, and it's really easy to slip into this, we have this like really negative view of the world, like everything's gotten terrible and the the world's going in a bad direction, you know, and and, uh, you know, it's going downhill, there's nothing we can do about it. And you can point to some scriptures that say that sin will increase. And that's true. That's absolutely true. It's God's Word. But that doesn't mean that the church is going to diminish and lose its place and, and go away. So at the same time that sin is increasing, we should have a really positive view of the kingdom of God, of what God is doing and how that's going to continue to go forth. And so I want to just briefly um, remind you of a passage in the Old Testament that talks about the kingdom of God. Um, Most of our stuff about the kingdom of God is New Testament, but there's there's this interesting story in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar is the king over Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, and in his vision he sees this this statue, and it's gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And he has this vision, and in the midst of this vision, there's this stone that comes and hits. So let me read this, Um, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 35. This is Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. He says, "'You saw, O king, and behold, a great image.'" This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so what's going on there? (laughs) Because that's what Nebuchadnezzar wants to know. What? What is this? What does all this mean? Well, um, Daniel goes on to explain, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and then there's going to be these other kingdoms that come after you. And then verse 44, he says, And in in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So God is going to set up his own kingdom. 
and it's going to increase until it fills the whole earth. And that's the kingdom we get. That's the kingdom we get to be part of. And so um, Hebrews picks up on this theme and says, Therefore, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So that kingdom that, da- that Daniel talks about is like this stone that, that comes in and then grows to be this great mountain that, that's going to be forever, that cannot be shaken. That's the kingdom of God that we get to be part of. Isn't that cool? So, so instead of having this like really negative view of like the world's getting really bad, which not entirely wrong, like we at the same time can reflect and rejoice on this recognition that God's winning, right? He's going to continue winning because the kingdom of God will continue to expand and go forth. Um, the, the end of where this is going, you know, Christ is king over this kingdom, and where this is going, the Bible gives us a glimpse in Revelation. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Ultimately, Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, and he is king over all things. So that's the direction we're heading. I just want to lay out that framework because we're going to hear a lot about the kingdom of God through the book of Luke. And we need to, to have that framework of what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about this rule and this reign of God in our, on earth in our lives. And so um, I just wanted to lay that out. We are part of the redeemed people of God. We can have an optimistic view of what God is doing in the world. And we see it happening, right? Don't we? I mean, look, we're 2,000 years out from the writing of the New Testament, and we're like, we're in the, like the ends of the earth, right? We're we're in Pasco, Washington, about, you know, the opposite side of the earth from Israel, and the gospel has made it here, right? The gospel has made it here and continues to go forth, and so we see it happening. Um, Our passage tells us one of the, the big reasons for why the kingdom of God is able to go forth as it has. And that is that Jesus has power and authority over the demons. Um, Our message today, I've called it Reversing the Reign of Demons. We're we're in this um, series called The Great Reversal. And really what we're seeing is how God is taking a world that is, is bent away from Him and reversing the effects of sin and restoring things to how they ought to be. And so he is reversing the reign of demons. And that might sound a little extreme. The reign of demons, like demons were in charge. Like, does is that seem a little extreme? Well, I think it's important for us to understand something that, like, the world today is different than it used to be. I think it's really important for us to know that demons had a huge role in the world in ancient times. Um, the Old Testament is talk, constantly talking about the gods, right? The, the little g gods. Well, who are these gods? Let me, let me just read a couple of passages. Um, Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So there's this category that they knew of these little g gods, but, but the real God, he's different, right? Well, who are these 
little G-gods. Is this just like make-believe and they're just pretending, right? Was there anything to this? Um, Another one, Exodus 23. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. These gods are going to make them sin against the Lord? How, How could that be? Well, when they worshiped the gods... They were actually worshiping demons. And these demons had huge sway over these different groups of people. And so let let me give you a couple examples. So Deuteronomy uh, 32, verse 16 and 17 says that they stirred him, they stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. What he's saying is they're not really God, right? And yet these gods that they're sacrificing to were demons. I'll give you another example. Psalm 106, verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Why would they do that? Why would, I mean, that's just like the most unthinkable thing. Um, that they would do this, and, and it's because the demons had some kind of power or sway over them in their lives. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about this. He says, um, what am I implying then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything, like this little statue that you built? No, I imply that the pagan sacri- what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. So it's really hard for us to understand this. We're like 2,000 years out, and we look back on that, and we think, okay, well, that sounds really weird that they were interacting with demons, like intentionally doing this, and yet that's the world that they lived in. So Galatians 4.8, Paul says, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, right? They are demons. They They were enslaved to these demons. And so in our modern, like, Western world, it, it's, like, really common for people to deny the existence of the spiritual realm. You know, that was just fairy tales that they told back then. You know, these are just, these are ghost stories, you know, things that go thump in the night, and you know, you're just trying to scare somebody, you know. But the reality is that these things were real, and people were actually enslaved to demons. So here's my question. Does this actually happen today? Is this just something that that was back then? Okay, I got a few nods, okay? And I, as I was thinking about this, like, there are probably some, like, really drastic situations I could point to. Like, like Dan and his family, they were overseas in Laos and Thailand, and there's active demon worship going on in, in those parts of the world where... Yeah, there's, I mean, there's dramatic stories that you guys could probably tell about this. And, um, I, I, you know, I've heard lots of accounts of people casting out demons. I know that that still happens today. But what I wanted to do is I want to pick something that's probably common to most of our experience. And that's something that happened to, um, for our family. We were just kind of got to see a couple months ago. We went over to Portland. We went to the Christmas concert for, um, for King and Country. Really fun concert. Went over there. Uh, went to the like Civic Center or whatever it's called there in Portland, and we had to 
park a few blocks away and walk over. And so it's a dark, cold, rainy night. And as we're walking along, we see lots of homeless people. Um, we stopped and got a hamburger. And um, we, we saw people who were actively taking drugs in public. You know, a guy snorting cocaine right there. And they're like, you know, wrapped in a sleeping bag and living on the street. And um, human dignity just completely stripped away. And you barely see the image of God in this person who's just a shell of themselves living there on the street, enslaved to drugs. Now, were they demon-possessed? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say that. But I think sometimes the lines are a little blurry between three things. Okay, so one is drug use, and the other one is mental illness, and the third one is demonic oppression, right? It's not to say that all mental illness is is that, right? I'm, I'm speaking specifically about drug use here, that drug use and mental illness and demonic oppression, sometimes the lines are blurry, like where does one end, how much are those interrelated um, it's interesting because uh, in ancient times, you know, you go back to the time that the Bible was written, they also linked those things together. So, so the word that they used for sorcery was pharmakeia, okay? Pharmakeia, which is where we get our word pharmacy from, the, the drugstore, right? And um, the reason for that is uh, they would use the word sorcery, which meant interacting with demons, but it could also mean drug use, right? It's the same word. Now, why would, why would they link these two ideas together that, that, you know, sorcery and interacting with demons is somehow like linked or it's like the same word for drug use? Well, it's because in their experience, that's how it worked out. People would take drugs in order to have visions and experience things in the spiritual realm and all of that. And so these ideas were linked together. Um, so I think it's safe to say uh, that people today who struggle with drug addiction and mental illness, also there's something spiritually going on, right? Now, now not universally, and I don't want to, you know, I, I want to be careful here. Um, my, my brother-in-law actually was uh, addicted drug, to drugs and went to jail and did lots of stuff for um, several years, and he would be the first one to point this out and say, there, there's something spiritual that you open yourselves up to. When, when you do drugs. And so, um, are people today enslaved to demons? Yes. Yes. And there's a lot of things that we could point to, but th- this is just one example. And so, Jesus steps into this situation. And Jesus isn't the first one to try to cast out demons, okay? Th- this is something, if you, if you go back to ancient Jewish records, you know, they, they tried and they would do, you know, formulas and potions and all sorts of things. There's lots of records of this. But there's no evidence that they were ever actually successful. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he does something totally unprecedented. You know, they, they, would, they would work at it really hard. Jesus just shows up and says, be gone. And they were. And so with a word, just like that, he shows. And they're just like flabbergasted by this. Like this guy shows up. And he has power and authority with his words to speak, and the demons flee, and they're gone, just like that. And he does this several times. You know, he does it here in verse 36, I think it is, where he commands the demon to come out. 
And we find out that the demon comes out and the man is unharmed. And that's just amazing. And he's in his right mind and everything's back to normal. (laughs) The demon's gone. Um, He does it again here in in verse 41. and, And many demons come out. And Jesus has authority over even the spiritual realm. So it's not just the things that we can see. It's also the things that we can't see that Jesus is powerful over. And what I want to show you is that Jesus is setting the captives free. And we looked um, two weeks ago, we, we were looking at um, this passage. Actually, yeah, no, it was actually last week. Last week, we were looking at what Jesus says in the synagogue. He gets up in the synagogue, and he reads this passage from Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what he's doing here. He's setting free the captives, setting free those who are oppressed. And so he comes, he he brings freedom to these these demonized people here. Um, That's actually the, the... Probably the best translation of that Greek word. It shows up a bunch of times, and it's this idea of being demonized. It usually doesn't say demon-possessed. It says they were demonized. And so there's some kind of power or oppression or influence of demons in their life. And so Jesus shows up to these demonized people and sets them free. But here's the really cool thing. Freedom from the power of demons is evident wherever the kingdom of God goes. Um, and that's been historically true around the world, and it's really cool. Um, Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus put to shame the demonic realm and Satan and all of them. Um, So Jesus defeated, he demoralized every enemy of God when he rose from the grave victorious. And the Bible says that Christ is now in us, right? And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so what that means is that wherever the church spreads, wherever it goes forth, what you see is people freed from any kind of involvement with demons. The demons are sent away. Um, the demons lose their power and influence. I, I want to actually share with you a couple things from, from church history. Okay, so very early on, they started to recognize, you know, things are different. <laughs> now that we're trusting Christ, things are really different. And so I want to read two quotes for you. The first one is from a guy named Ignatius, and this is from around 110 AD. So, you know, Jesus did his ministry around the year 30. The apostles were writing in 50 or 60. This is now in 110. So this is like two generations later. This guy, Ignatius, um, this is what he says. He says, take heed then often to come together to give thanks to God and show forth his praise. Come together often, do church, be together For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Nothing is more precious than peace, by which all war, both in heaven and earth, is brought to an end. Isn't that fascinating? 
How do we make sure that the demons flee, that they're gone? We do this. This is what we do. We get together, we have church, we praise God, and, and that's, that's what you need to do, right? So it's, it's this, this, really it's like this encounter with the power of God being manifested in this place to where the demons, the demons can't be around this. <laughs> they just, they flee, they leave, because it is obvious that this belongs to Jesus. Amen? Let, let me read another quote. This is from a guy named Athanasius, um, another famous Christian writer. But this one's about 200 years later, okay? This is the year 320. And um, he's writing this as... Rome is becoming Christian, and the influence is spreading out from Jerusalem, spreading to the north. And he writes about the barbarians. And the barbarians would be probably like Germany, modern-day Germany, and that, that kind of area to the north, all those barbarians. And he says, the barbarians of the present day, written in 320, the barbarians of the present day are naturally savage in their habits. And as long as they sacrifice to their idols, they rage furiously against each other and cannot bear to be a single hour without weapons. (laughs) Just a fascinating view of, that's how they perceive the barbarians. Um, But when they hear the teaching of Christ, forthwith they turn from fighting to farming. And instead of arming themselves with swords, they extend their hands in prayer. In a word, instead of fighting each other, they take up arms against the devil and the demons and overcome them. Here's how. They overcome them by their self-command and integrity of soul. These facts are proof of the Godhead of the Savior. For He has taught men what they could never learn among the idols. It's also no small exposure of the weakness and nothingness of demons and idols. For it was because they knew their own weakness that the demons were always setting men to fight each other, fearing lest if they um, ceased from mutual strife, they would turn to attack the demons themselves. For in truth, the disciples of Christ, instead of fighting each other, stand arrayed against demons by their habits and virtuous actions and chase them away and mock at their captain, the devil. Even in youth, they are chased. They endure in times of testing and perseverance and toils. When they are insulted, they are patient. When robbed, they make light of it. And marvelous to relate, they make light even of death itself and become martyrs of Christ. How is it that they defeated the power of Satan in their lives? It's by following the Lord and His teaching. Isn't that fascinating? He goes on to say, demons so far from continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracle givings and sorceries, they are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try. Isn't that cool? So here's the point. Jesus is still casting out demons. He's still doing it. Wherever we we go with the gospel, wherever the gospel goes forth, Jesus is casting out demons. He is still victorious, and we get to be part of that. And so the normal Christian experience is that as we live out the Christian life, demons don't have a part with us. And that's, that's partly why in Western civilization we don't talk a lot about demons and all that, because when Christian presence is strong, they're not here, or, or at least they're held at bay, right? It's when, when 
a, a society begins to abandon their Christian heritage and dabble in other things, that's when you see demonic oppression. Um, I want to take us to another passage. It's Ephesians chapter 6. I want to take just a couple minutes here. So Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And I want you to see how Paul says that we should wage war against the demons. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Notice the emphasis here. It's so interesting because I think we could have very easily assumed that Paul would have said, okay, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against demons, and so I want you to practice saying these words after me. In the name of Jesus, go forth, be cast out, go away. Like He could have gone that direction with this, but he goes this totally different direction, doesn't he? He goes in this direction of telling us, here's what you need to gird on as the armor of God to protect yourself against the demons. Here's how you defeat the demons. You gird on truth and righteousness and readiness to share the gospel and faith and salvation and the word and prayer. Like these are the things that you take on. This is how you win in spiritual battle. And so in practice, like this idea that, you know, Jesus... Um, disarmed the powers and put them to open shame at the cross. Like, you think about that, like this, this girding ourselves with truth. What that means is that Jesus is victorious over everything, right? And we're with him. <laughs> so, so we're victorious. We're on the winning side here. The, the kingdom of God is going to win. He's, he's victorious over even death itself. And what, what would the enemy do to us? Well, I mean, the enemy would deceive us, right? But we've seen Jesus. How's he going to deceive us? We've seen Jesus. We know what God is like. Or or the enemy would be our accuser, right? The accuser of the brethren, it says. Well, how's he going to accuse us? What's left to accuse us with? Jesus died in our place, took away our guilt. We have no guilt. So we see how truth from God's word eliminates the power of the enemy. Um, it goes on, you know, righteousness and readiness to share the gospel. Each, each of these things are things that we can cling to that give us victory over the enemy. And so what I want you to take away from this is what we actually see in the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus has a priority. Let's see if I can find it. 
in Luke chapter 4, down here in verse 43. I don't know if this is on the slides or not. Um, he says, um, you know, they're, they're imploring him, please stay. Please stay here in Capernaum. This, this whole thing you're doing, you know, healing the sick and casting out demons, this is really cool. Please stay. And Jesus says, I can't. I need to continue going forth and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so his emphasis is on continuing to go forth. We, we you know, BJ is um, teaching this class on, on James, um, which is after the service today. Get to stick around for that. Um, we looked at James 4, 7 recently that says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submitting to God means letting him be king, letting his kingdom reign in our lives. And that's the first step to spiritual victory. <laughs> Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's some other steps in that passage. But those are the main things of recognizing that there is a real spiritual battle. It is real. This isn't make-believe. It's not just pretend. There actually is a spiritual realm. There actually is a battle going on. Satan still intends to steal and kill and destroy. And yet, the good news, we're on the winning side. Amen? So, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the kingdom of God continuing to go forth. Christ's rule and reign in every corner of creation. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, oh, thank you, Lord. We just thank you, Father, for the, the good news that you reign even in the spiritual realm. Lord, that we have no need or reason to fear Satan or the demons. Lord, we, we are victorious in Christ. And Lord, you have allowed that to happen throughout the world, everywhere where the name of Christ is named. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to carry forth this message, that we would continue to see lives transformed and captive,